Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrewer and I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights and this week we're discussing lift or elevator buttons and impatience. So just to start us off, I've got a friend who gets really annoyed with me when if we're waiting for a lift because I press the button, nothing happens for a bit, doesn't doesn't come, and I press it again and again and again and just keep pressing it, and that really annoys him. Peter, is he right to get annoyed with me? Um, I I think I would feel a similar sort of frustration because um, I you know I think it comes down to uh, knowing knowing more about how the lift works, perhaps uh, having a. Uh, a more in-depth model for what the control system is, and I know that uh, the button is a binary button. And well, uh, no, 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 no. I'm going to stop you there. You can't pull the engineering ace card on me. I know how a lift works as well, to the extent that if I press that button, that's kind of all I need to do. Yeah. And yet, I still keep pressing it. So, well, why is that? Why do you? Why? 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 What makes you think that pressing the button harder or more often is going to is going to make you uh, make the lift appear quicker? Oh well, that's the question. So, answer that for me. Well, I, I, well, I, I think it's big, I, you're you're not controlling your rational self. Your 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 reptilian early brain is saying, well, this, this is this is synonymous with the physical world. So if I want to move something faster, I have to push it harder or push it more often. Um, and it's uh, it, you're you're not your higher functions aren't controlling that action and uh, saying I don't need to push it because I push it once and it's going to come as quickly as if I. So hold on, let me get a question here for you. Um, So far, I mean, I agree with what you've said, and I I recognise the irrationality of what I do. Let's say, I mean, what's your expectation of when you press a lift button in a normal situation? What's your expectation of how long that it will take that lift to arrive? Let's say within one minute, for example. That's even pushing it a bit. But let's say you've pushed it and the button's lit up, um, and you know that lift's coming, and two minutes pass, then three minutes, and the button is still lit. What would you do, Peter? Well, I might, I might, I might, I might take the stairs at that point. But uh, uh, it, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. So, would you take the stairs before pushing the button again? Yes, because I know that it won't make any difference pushing the button. Really? And that, that said, though, I think the control systems aren't, often aren't that simple, and a, a very easy way to work out how many people you're inconveniencing by. Uh, lead, by not not getting the lift to them, and therefore a way of prioritising the the where the lift moves to next is to account for the number of buttons that are pushed. Um, so if, if you could you could have a simple counter that just counts the number of times that being the buttons being pushed on each floor, and if there's one button push, that's less that has less priority than someone has pushed it lots of times. Yeah, but then then you're but just going to get very... into a war of button mad yeah, but that's, button pushes. That's, that's very that'd be very very easy to game. You'd have yeah. to have a system like that where the operate the people using it would not know that those were the yes. rules. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then you wonder why why have it? I mean, I, I suppose the the. Um, what you're trying to do is assess the number of independent button pushes. Mm. If everyone had their own individual button push, mm. you know. Uh, but I think in real life here, you've got a situation where you'd have to entertain some alternative hypotheses, like the, maybe the lift's broken, which seems unlikely if the light was off and you pressed it and then the light came on. It feels like that's probably not broken. But it could be that the light is is the button is malfunctioning in some way. Uh, I've encountered real life buttons where, you know, the light works, but the but the uh, order hasn't been processed or whatever. Mm. It may be that push 
pushing the button harder will will solve that so out of interest nick what would you do in my situation would you if the lift wasn't coming would you start pushing the button yeah and i think it mainly mainly not because i believed it would be effective but because it would relieve me of a kind of tension i think i think the the issue is to do with uh, and i think peter touched on it with we're talking about our quite base instincts here a lot of the time we treat things in the world as though they're as though they're agents i think there's a lot of kind of um animism in our fundamental behaviors you know that actually if the lift was an was an animal and you poked it really hard a lot of times it would pay attention to you um and that's that i i feel like that's often what lies behind uh, our frustration with with control mechanisms and uh, you know interfaces is that we think of it as a kind of creature and we feel slighted by the fact that this creature is not is not paying attention to us and and certainly with computer rage that's that's a big drive i mean computers try to be your best friend don't they they try to be your mate they try to act like they're a person an agent doing things on your behalf they have things like clippy the paperclip who you pops like up. you're typing a letter exactly and then and I, I feel like well now i've got the right to get annoyed with you if you go into one of your ridiculous funks where you ignore the fact i've just double clicked on this icon, well, especially if they humanize you know. themselves right right and, and that's so that's interesting i mean you humanize computers because people relate to them but then you, you, the flip side of that is that people are going to get cross with a computer in a way they don't get cross with a spanner. Yeah. But also, I remember one of the first things I ever did with Siri was to swear at it just for fun. And I'm sure millions of people can say the same thing, right? And and sure enough, Siri has got a response built in, which he says something like, well, you didn't need to say that or, or something like <laughs> yes, that. Yeah. But um, which they've, has obviously been pre-programmed. So the, the programmers understand people. Um, yeah. I mean, where do we want to go with this? Well, I, I think there are the other control systems which you meet day to day, which are worth exploring. Um, the the humble thermostat, um, the the energy the energy saving trust uh, commissions uh, or conducted some research in two thousand and fourteen, uh, and uh, asked people about how they use their heating and uh, to gain insight about how behaviour could be affected to reduce carbon emissions um and uh, they came up with a number of myths and there were two myths which are particularly pertinent i think so the first myth is that uh if it's if it's uh cold outside 52 percent of people said that they um turn the thermostat up to a higher setting um even though that even though that you're you're if you're in if you're in the house it'd be this, and the thermostat's working um it will uh, not affect the temperature you'll end up with just a slightly hotter house um but you, you so there's some sort of disconnect between perception of temperature relative to what's going on outside um and it, and, and it, and it just shouldn't be necessary because the, the thermostat is there to to get it to control temperature another is if you if you're say you're coming home from coming home from outside and it's a bit cold in the house because the heating's been off um then turning the thermostat up to a higher temperature will cause the room to heat up quicker so say you you want 21 degrees you turn it up to 30 degrees because it will get there quicker in in this case the the, the thermostat knobs acting more like a volume control in their mind and uh, it's sort of a, it, it's directly controlling the size of the flame heating the water yeah i could i would definitely imagine myself doing both of these things but, i uh, i wonder yeah but are, is it possible that uh, actually there is some wisdom there because i know in theory obviously in theory you should select your preferred temperature once ever when you first install your thermostat and then leave it alone for for, for the rest of your life in theory but uh, you know I definitely feel like actually sometimes when it's very close to the uh, temperature you want it to be, the the noise in the system 
um, is such that it may well just be, you know, it's slightly off on its yeah. detection well, of the they're... temperature or it's detecting the wrong bit of the house or there whatever. Is, there is engineers. And, and therefore, you know, actually, uh, if I know I just need the heating to come on, then, you know, I could turn the thermostat up for, for an hour and, uh, and and then put it back down later. Yeah, well, there, there is definitely engineered hysteresis in it so that it will only switch on below a lower threshold and switch off after a higher threshold to, to stop a flip-flop situation going where it's right on the right on the temperature and the boiler is just being switched on and on, on, on off, on, yeah. off, on, off. Um, so there's, there's engineer's hysteresis. But So, yes, you are kind of right, but it's only half a degree it's a tiny fraction um so what you're actually probably doing is wanting a slightly warmer room in which case you are totally right to turn the thermostat up it could i mean there's also the prospect that we our own internal perception of temperature is driven by lots of things that aren't actually close that closely related at any given time to the environmental temperature mm. so actually you know i'll be fiddling with my thermostat because 21 degrees might be fine one day but the next day because yeah. i've you know got a different jumper on or i've just been outside or there's a slight breeze you know mm-hmm. like a different different yeah. number is better i mean that's what i would say i mean certainly if not for the second example you gave but the first one i mean when it's colder I actually want to be hotter than my yeah. usual 21 degrees, let's say, yeah. that I would like the ambient uh, temperature. And the, the, these, these, these figures don't... In my, in my house, uh, I spend a lot of time in a back room that's got a crappy radiator, so I actually have to take more manual control over my thermostat to heat that Well, Peter actually up. lives in a super-cooled vat uh, and, and attached to electrodes. Yeah, I live in a so, server room, yeah. so it's, it's uh, very, very chilly in there. But actually, yeah, there's a third thing. There's another, another option here, which is I don't want a bloody thermostat anyway because we've got a thermostat in my house and I do not like it. I don't, I don't mm. like having control over this, is this other part. This is so a I really, think, so this I, is a big thing. Yeah, yeah, this is a big thing. I mean, I, so as uh, you, you might really hate having a smart thermostat because it's trying to, it's trying to be, take, remove even more control from you more direct control mm. um, and be smarter about how it's how it's um, change, changing the temperature on your path so working out when you are in the house and when you're not adjusting the temperature to save your energy but then if you, you so the so the two ways to go I think you could either make it even smarter and collect more data about you so it would work out when you're likely to be feeling chilly and pre and, and guess ahead of when you would go and control your thermostat or go a really simplistic route and just give you a volume control like control over your temperature and give you full full manual control over what, what temperature it is this this reminds me of of the uncanny valley it's almost like a kind of control version of uncanny valley uh, uncanny valley uh, is the um it's this it's this sort of uh, phenomenon where if you make something slightly anthropomorphic, so something like a you know a cartoon character where it doesn't look very much like a human at all, but we can find it cute. You can find a, a you know um, a cartoon character, big eyes, completely. If, the, if that thing existed in real life, it'd be terrifying. But it, it but it's fine because it's a, just an anthropomorphized representation of a pretend thing. Um, and then you can push things to be closer and closer, more resembling of humans. And actually, when you get when you get to a point where you're quite close to, but not quite at looking exactly like a human um our brains start to interpret it as a human where there's something wrong 
rather than a rather than a non-human that looks a bit like a human it starts to look like a human with something wrong with it and we find it really repulsive um and so uncanny valley sort of affects you know if you have cgi that's very very close but not absolutely right or um or you have a robot which is quite like a human this is almost this made me think of that because i think actually you know when when you're getting smarter and smarter with your control mechanisms um in a way like a really dumb system where you have an on and an off uh is is fine like you know it's a bit more work but we're kind of okay with that um but when it starts to be almost trying to do things for us in a very very smart way if it isn't getting that exactly right it's phenomenally irritating you know if it is trying to help you and failing it's much more annoying than if it's just you know actually you're the one who has to turn it on and off yeah so where do we go from there um yeah well i mean i suppose the question is do we try and design interfaces to take account of humans uh of, of our kind of intuitive feeling about the world you know reacts when you push it harder i was wondering about um i was thinking everything about harpsichords because uh, you know harpsichords obviously doesn't matter how hard you hit the keys um they they it will always pluck at the same same uh, volume um i still wonder if people when they were playing the harpsichord weren't hitting the keys harder when they wanted it to be louder and in fact one of the things you know that uh, that that why they invented the piano was because that was such a sort of instinctive urge and something that was completely you know was wrong with the harpsichord in a yeah. way like wrong in terms of it didn't feel right because other instruments obviously you know there are there are there are you know guitar which is you pluck it harder it's louder um you know there are in stringed instruments which you hit with hammers which you know get louder the more you hit them yeah, both, i wonder both. if I wonder if people, and like yeah, and I find, I find harpsichords really hard to play because mm. I find them, you know, I can't, I, I just really feel like I need some more feedback. Okay, so that being the case, then I, mean, I think I agree with you. And so we, what we need to do with lifts is what we've done with with the harpsichord, right? So back to you, Peter. So we need this system, right, where um, it, it, it responds accordingly to yeah, either the number of times we press it or the, the, the weight with which we press it. Yeah, That's it, the future, it, yeah? It's, it's feasible. I mean, but yes, you with but with a simple button press, it would be easily to gain because you'd just sit there and hang on the button and uh, everyone would ultimately do that and you'd be in the same place, albeit you'd all be suffering because everyone's trying to hang on the button. But you, you could say you could have a thing, fingerprint reader in the button, so each unique button press you've only got to, everyone's got up to 10 <laughs> so um <laughs> you've got you've got 10 button presses then you're in the same place but somebody else comes along then there's 20 button presses on your floor so the lift could then prioritize your floor over a floor with only one person yeah on. i guess where the analogy falls down is that the harp score there's just one person and um yeah there's a game theory element to the lift which which confuses matters a bit yeah um well what we need is we need um lifts that can tell the future right and that can guess. Well, I think the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah. had a lift that could tell it the future, I think. Well, I think this is a bit like that, you know, the issue about train timetables and stuff being, you know, when you when processing gets sophisticated enough, uh, when, when we are able to tailor responses in as smart a way as possible, then um, machines will start behaving in ways that are kind of obscure and hard to read. And and I think, you know, with, the, with train timetables, at the moment, you know, they're designed so that they're legible, so that we, we can find out which train we need to be on. Uh, you can imagine very easily in the future having dynamic train, train side tables where you just turn up, you use your app to tell it where you want to go. And it just comes, you know, there might be just a, a train might turn up, stop at a couple of random stops, go back by one stop. You know, something quite uh, chaotic looking would happen. That that mm. would be optimal. Um and I, and I wonder actually with sophisticated control, whether actually this would start to violate 
our need to understand how a control system works that actually we whether this would i mean it would, it would deliver more efficient outcomes but we might not like it we might mm. not like it if the machines are doing things that we don't understand on our behalf i wonder if that's a kind of limitation so if we had a prescient lift we would actually rebel against that well i, I mean it would do things like it might do things that we would think of as weird or illogical you know oh, why we, we've just been up to the 10th floor why are we going down to the 7th and up to the 9th and you know we feel like the lift ought to go all the way in one direction and then come all the way back in the other direction that's how a human would design it mm. but actually the optimal uh, might be some weird sort of fractal looking um, you know series of small up and down yeah. journeys I think that yeah, maybe that kind of distrust is rational because if such you could get you could be that the lift is trying to minimize journey time for all passengers you might be that really unlucky guy that's stuck in a real small spiral of the fractal well you end up spending all day on the lift never going to his floor <laughs> yeah because although, everybody else you, you you just happen to be the extreme in in the distribution yeah although although you wouldn't have to that would be a slightly balmy uh objective for it to minimize you know i think i think you'd, you'd probably do something like mini max or you know you'd want to sort of minimize the maximum waiting time or something mm. um but you know it's tricky. It is tricky because then then you st- actually the, the advantage of a simple system is it's not trying to optimize anything. Yeah. It's just doing what it does. Um, and I, when when systems start optimizing, then you might be on the wrong end of it. It's, it also violates some kind of egalitarianism that yeah. we have, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, I just I I think that's a, that's something we really are going to have to face a lot more of. Is is um, yeah, the, and of course, there's the other issue that that if you don't understand what machine's doing, you can't necessarily tell if it's malfunctioning, mm. which is also something I think that worries us. Uh, you know, I, hence the arguments that I have with my girlfriend about um, the satnav. You know that she she believes that the satnav sends us sometimes in an inefficient direction, and I think sometimes she's right. I, I whatever algorithm it's using is definitely sometimes mm. uh, actually just is not as good and um you know well it might be it's doing something really clever but but it might just be getting it wrong yes yeah and it sometimes is i mean that's quite a common thing actually my wife is always arguing with our sat nav as well um i think when when deep blue was first playing gary kasparov uh in the in the late 90s i think there was an occasion where kasparov you know noted one of its moves which was really surprising and um and uh, sort of co- complimented it and said that's a really deep sort of move, and it turned out to have been a, a bug. Mistake. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm. I think, that, but there's another. There is another sort of solution. If you can, if you can do away with the scarcity, um, then you then there's a natural solution there. So the tubes aren't timetabled because there's always going to be another one along in five minutes. You don't need to plan it. Um, so you don't. There's not uh, using a brute force approach. So there's no computation there. It's just you. You just, you just know there's going to be a tube along in a you know, minute. You know, you timetable it. It's only in trains where there's a bigger gap and you have to do more planning to get connections and things that there's a problem. So if you replaced all the trains with big conveyor belts that just accelerated you up to travel speed and you could step off at any any point, then they would, they would, they would, that would solve it. I want to. This is going slightly off topic, but. Um... I want to regale you with some um, stories of lifts in my life, okay? Please do. <laughs> Please do. Okay, well, and actually they're all annoying experiences. Is worst country in the world for lifts? In my experience, Turkey. Okay. And it's not the, the lifts that are the problem. Is that I think it's to do with this. This is when I was in Istanbul and, work, and I was visiting banks. Um, all of the Turkish banks seem to be at these huge high-rise buildings. 
but they hadn't matched um, the the height and, and and the number of people working there with the capacity for lifts. Mm. So you'd have this huge building with many many floors, with thousands of workers trying to get in. You've got sort of one lift, or I mean that's an exaggeration, but a couple of lifts. So you used to have lift lift jams at mm-hmm. sort of oh, nine yes, o'clock yeah. in the morning and at five o'clock get, in the evening. Get, and so on. yeah, that's quite that's quite well documented in in skyscrapers. It's quite a difficult planning problem because you're um, you have a rush hour um, yeah. at either end of the day. Uh, and so you've got to you've got to design your capacity to meet that the maximum of the rush hour, mm. but the most then most of the day um, the lift is sitting idle, um, and that's a, in a in a high rise building a lift is quite a big piece of space to use up that could be used for more rent, rented office space or rented accommodation space. Did you ever play Sim Tower? I did, yeah. Sim Tower was basically a lift simulator, but uh, with a, with a kind of tower building element built on. Yeah. Uh, I can see that really being a pizza type game. Yeah, um, so so I mean, there are lots of solutions to this. You, ha- you can either have extremely lots of lots of lifts that take a brute force approach, all in parallel, or you could have you can have um, the building sections. So you you take a, a, a fast yeah. lift up to a hub, and then a smaller lift down or up from there to 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 your floor. So they're sort of separated in in space, kind of tree model. A tree model, yeah. Um, so, that, but it's it's a big it's a planning problem. It's uh, very difficult to predict how the building is going to be used throughout its lifetime. Yeah. Um, nice. Uh, a second lift um, story it was in Brazil. I get so fed up in Brazil, where I visit fairly often, um, because a lot people generally live in high rise buildings, um, and. And one of the things that annoys me, well, there's two things that annoy me. One, it tends to be incredibly hot because one of the areas that tends not to be have air conditioning in Brazil would be a lobby um, and also in the lift itself. So I'd spend a lot of my time, well, that's the first thing. But the second thing is is, um, is something that people are sometimes doing in Brazil is they hold a lift a lot. They tend to hold it. Mm. So if someone, you know, and they've got big families and they wait for everyone to come through and they just hold the lift. And actually you can hear people on other floors start shouting. Um, and so I just spent, I just feel that in Brazil, I spent a lot of my time waiting around in lifts uh, for a lift or well, in a lift and, yeah. and just being, and so double with that, the frustration is just how hot it is and it just drives me mad. But, I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing. If you, if we did design this super intelligent lift that, uh, pre, that was able to predict when it was going to be needed and everything else, then the, again, the humans are going to come along and mess it up because they're, they're different people have different concept of what manners are in terms of holding lifts. I think Peter's ideal lift lifts. system is one with no humans in it at all at any time. <laughs> <laughs> well, a big conveyor belt. You just get on. Or, or low-rise no, low buildings with Yeah, uh, low-rise buildings. Or use the stairs. Or Slides. Yeah. What's um, some slides, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. No, I think, but I think I remember seeing something recently. Someone said the lift was the, it's the, uh, probably one of the most influential inventions, you know, of the last 500 years because it enables us to live in high-rise buildings, which are the foundation of the modern city, you know, hmm. simply not possible without, um, without the lift and the safety mechanisms that, you know, the really clever safety mechanisms that are built into it and stuff. So uh, before I wind up, anything anyone wants to say? What, what, how, where, where did we start on this? Oh, yeah. Don't push lift buttons. Yeah, um, it sounds like the problem t- with all the, the the common theme here is the problem is not the technology. The problem is the it's human. how we yeah it's how we interpret it, how we how we engage with it, how we give it agency when it should doesn't necessarily deserve it. So uh, yeah, so to round it up, I mean perhaps uh, I was going to say a more Aleph kind of thing, but actually a more a Peter Aleph thing would be we would just be better off without humans essentially, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. There we go. On that. Well, no, well, not necessarily. But better off without humans. In, but if we, since even we can't get rid of humans, then better off with extremely intelligent systems that collect a lot of data and uh, process it. Right. So I think the problem is we're in that bridge at the moment, aren't we? So we're we're, we're kind of living through the evolution of of sm- genuinely smart systems, and it causes problems. Mm. And yes, the solution is to take all the humans, melt them down into a kind of soup, and then and then use, <laughs> use that to, to fuel. Yeah, use it use it to fuel a giant lift manufactory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Let's wrap up there, gentlemen. Thank you as always. Um, thank you to listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrewer. We've been here with Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. Thank you, and until next time, bye bye. Mm-hmm.